Good morning. How are we all doing today? It is good to see you here this morning. Um, my wife and I moved here a year ago. Actually, last week I told you it was 360, whatever it is. Now it's 367 days ago. We moved here one year ago Friday to plant restoration. And as we've gotten into the community, we've met people and we've talked to people, we've gotten a series of questions that have been asked. So the first five weeks, we're answering the questions that we have been asked over the last year. Last week, we answered the question, why a new church in Cape Coral? And as I said last week, we could go through all the statistics about people in poverty in Cape Coral. Yes, we have over 10,000 people in poverty, 3,000 single mothers in poverty. We have over 800 kids in Lee County that slept in a car last night because they're homeless. We have all kinds of issues that the church will address. But the reason we came, we looked at the story uh, of the, uh, the woman caught in adultery in, in John chapter 8. And we realized that no matter what you've done in your past, no matter who you are, that God has a plan for your life and that God loves you and he wants you and he, uh, he has a plan for you. And that's why we are here. Um, I could tell you, by the way, that per capita, Cape Coral is like number 26 with the least number of churches for uh, the population, but I won't tell you that. So, um, but last week we saw that, that God did not condemn the woman caught in adultery. He gave her hope. He gave forgiveness. And then he said, go and sin no more. So today's question is why Christianity? And I've heard this one a lot. There are a lot of uh, religions out there. There's a lot of religions. Why would I believe in Christianity versus any other religion? And so we're going to look at this from three different angles. But let me start by saying uh, this to me points to a bigger question, which a lot of people have. Is there a God? And let me just tell you, yes, there is a God. Okay? And, and let me tell you why. You know, if you look at an atheist, which is somebody who doesn't believe in God, versus a theist who somebody does believe in God, I think the atheist has a whole lot more faith than I do. Both the theist and the atheist believe that something existed outside of time, uncreated. The atheist, I did a ton of reading this last week on atheist websites. It was really interesting. Uh, and, and the atheist will believe that the universe just exists. It was not created and that the universe created time, and that the universe, by some big random explosion that mathematically impossibly created the world, uh, the chance of a random explosion creating the world is like one in one with a thousand trillion zeros behind it. Because if it exploded just a touch more, we would be just off center and no life could exist on earth. If it exploded just a touch less, no life could exist on earth. So they have to believe that there is some random fluke chance that happened, that life exists, that the universe created everything. Um, and so I tend to look at it a little bit differently. I believe that God existed outside of time. I believe that God just exists. I believe that God created the universe. I believe that God created morality. That's one that the atheist has a really hard time explaining is, why would morality exist if the, if the universe just existed? Why would we even feel like murder is wrong or the sex slave trade is wrong or whatever it is? I believe there has to be a moral lawgiver who imprinted it on our hearts according to the Bible. 
that we just know what is right and wrong. I believe that God created time. And I believe that he designed everything. So when I look at the evidence, I believe that there must be a God. As I said, the atheist, they have a whole lot more faith than I do. In fact, a lot of levels, I really respect the ability for them to have that much faith. Because I can't have that kind of faith. They have to believe in a million little tiny miracles. I believe in one miracle. I believe in the miracle of God and everything else makes sense. So today, as I said, the question is, why Christianity? And we're going to look at this from three different angles. History. Now, historical events are the things that were recorded by eyewitnesses back in the day. Number two, logic. Logic is a method of reasoning where you take the facts that we know and then you surmise things from that to come up with a conclusion. And then the third one is experience. Does my personal experience line up with what we believe? or what we believe as true anyways. And personal experience is often the least reliable. And here's why. None of us have had every experience. So I can't tell you by experience that childbirth is painful. My wife can tell you that, but I've never had that experience. But historically, she told me it was painful. Through logic, I saw the sweat and the screaming. It was painful, but my personal experience can't tell you it was painful. So it's the least reliable because we haven't experienced everything. Let me give you another example here. Let's look at this. If you have a sequence of numbers, 2, 4, 6, and 8, what comes next? 10. Unlike my wife who said, who do we appreciate? Yes, I remember that from high school. Um, so if we look at that under the three methods of truth, historically... People have documented in textbooks that if you have the sequence of numbers 2, 4, 6, and 8, 10 would be the next number. Logically, I can say, okay, we've added 2 each time. So if we have 2 pennies, 4 pennies, 6 pennies, 8 pennies, if you add 2 more, it's 10. But if I've never had that experience before, maybe I've had 3, 5, 9, 12, but I've never had 2, 4, 6, 8. I have a relatable experience where I can say, okay, we added three each time, this time we're adding two. So my personal experience at some levels would have some relatable experience. So the question becomes, how do the three tests of truth line up with Christianity? So number one, historical evidence. What is the historical evidence for Christ? Because the reality is if we can prove Christ is who he says he is, Christianity makes sense. So the first one is historical evidence. Now, a lot of people will say you can't use the Bible to prove the historical evidence of Christ. So fine, we won't use the Bible. Let's go outside of the Bible. What do non-biblical sources say about Christ? Tacitus was a Roman leader. He was a senator. He was a historian. He lived from 56 to 120 A.D. So this was within 100 years of the life of Christ that he lived. He wrote a series of books, and in his final book called Annals, uh, which was written in 115 A.D., Book 15, chapter 44, he was reporting about how uh, Nero was blaming the Christians for the burning of Rome in 64 AD, and he wrote this. Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous supersti superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. So he is saying that Christ existed, that 
he suffered under Pontius Pilate the most brutal death and that a superstition broke out that Christ was raised from the dead. This was within 100 years of Christ dying. Now, Pliny the Younger is someone else. He was actually Pliny the Younger. What a great name. He was the nephew of Pliny the Elder. And Pliny the Elder actually lived through the life of Christ. He was raised by his uncle. He was a lawyer. He was a senator. And he ended his career as the imperial governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. And in one of his letters dated around 112 A.D., he wrote this question, uh, or he wrote uh, another uh, Roman emperor by the name of Trajan, and he was saying, okay, how do I uh, appropriately bring a charge against Christians? How do, how, how do I move forward with the legal proceedings? And this is what he wrote. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word or deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. So again, Within 100 years, Pliny the Younger is confirming that Christ, at least the claims that Christ made were, were acknowledged, right? And I love the fact that the Christians were known for not falsifying testimony and for living a life differently than the rest of society. The writings of Josephus, he is a first century historian. I'll just bust through a couple of more of these real quick. He was a historian, and now as a Jewish historian, he was not a fan of Christ. Josephus would not have said something to support Christ because the Jews, of course, were not fans of Christ. In his book, Antiquities, book 18 references the execution of Jesus by Pilate. So that supports at least the execution of Christ. And in book 20, chapter 9, he references the condemnation of James, who was the brother of, of uh, Jesus. He references that. And he, when he says he was the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. So again, he's confirming that it was believed that Jesus was the Christ. The Babylonian Talmud, which was written somewhere around 70 A.D., um, says on the eve of Passover, Jeshu was hanged, or Jesus, Jeshua. Yeshua would be the old uh, Hebrew way of saying Jesus' name. So Jeshu was hanged in records that he was accused of sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So even the, the Jewish Talmud supports it, the Babylonian Talmud. And then I love this one because I love satire. Uh, Lucian of Samosota was a second century Greek satirist. And he's mocking the Christians in one, of his, in one of his records. He says, the Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. So he's mocking the Christians for what they say they believe. But non-biblical uh, evidence is that Jesus existed, that uh, he had his followers who lived their lives differently, and that the claims of the followers are recorded. This wasn't something that they just, uh, it wasn't something that happened later in time. This was happening right around the life of Christ. 
So the first test of, of historical evidence, I think we can check that box. Historically, we can believe that Jesus lived, and we can believe that he had followers. He was certainly crucified. So we can check the box that history at least says that. Now, logically, let's look at the examples of his disciples. You know, there are many religions that believe um, that they have found their God, and often their followers will lie about it. Usually they'll lie about it, though, because they have something to gain, whatever that may be. They may get power, they may get money, they may get prestige. So let's look at what happened to the followers of Jesus, and you tell me if logically this makes sense. If you see this happening to all the followers of Jesus, would you commit to stick with this lie, or would you change your opinion and go, you know what, this was a hoax? So this is what happened. James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. Peter was crucified, and he said, I want to be crucified upside down because I don't deserve to die the same way that Christ did. Paul was beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Thomas, doubting Thomas, who had to see the, the, the nail marks in Jesus' hand to believe, he went to what is modern-day Russia, Asia Minor, and Greece. He went to India where there are over 30 million gods, and he was crucified. Philip went to North Africa and Asia Minor. He converted the wife of the proconsul of Asia Minor. He was arrested, tortured, and cruelly put to death. Matthew, this is the guy who gave up a very lucrative career, Matthew went um, to Persia and Ethiopia. Some say he died of natural causes. Some records say that he was stabbed to death. Maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe he was stabbed to death, which, of course, naturally you would die. Bartholomew, he went to India with Thomas, Armenia, Ethiopia, Asia Minor. He was martyred for the gospel. James, the son of Elpheus, he's one of the people named James in the New Testament. Uh, he went to Syria. Josephus claimed that he was stoned to death and then beaten with clubs. Simon the Zealot from Persia was killed for refusing to worship the sun god. Thaddeus is Judas, is the second Judas. He's the brother of James. He's the author of the book Jude, by the way, and St. Jude Children's Hospital is named after him. Uh, he founded the church in Edessa. He, martyred, he was martyred in Syria with an axe or a club and if you see pictures of him, there's often an axe or a club in the picture there. Uh, his remains were taken back to Rome where he was interned in St. Peter's Basilica, where his remains are still there to this day. Matthias, who replaced Judas, is one of the 12. When Judas uh, rebelled against Jesus and turned Jesus in, they replaced him with a disciple named Matthias. He went to Syria with Andrew, and he was burned to death. John took care of Jesus' mom. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, brother, here's your mother. He took care of her. He also was a leader of the church of Ephesus. He was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Early Latin tradition says that he was boiled in oil for his faith, but he escaped, and then he died of old age. So let me ask you this. What did these men have to gain? If you were in their place, and you saw everybody that believed what you believed being murdered, brutally beaten, boiled in oil, would you stick with this lie? Or if you're trying to deceive people, would you stick with that? Or would you, I mean, good grief, people can't even keep a secret nowadays. Now that we have social media, I know that none of the, they didn't have social media back then. But people can't keep secrets. 
People can't keep secrets. They're always going to look out for the best of themselves. So logically, I don't believe it would have been easy for this lie to continue if it wasn't true. They at least believed what they said they saw. They believed that he was the Christ. If not, somebody would have turned coat. But they didn't. None of them did, and all of them suffered a very painful and brutal death. So, let's go down and say what Jesus says about himself. And this is where it really gets, gets good to me. Logically, if you were going to come to deceive people, would you make very specific claims about yourself that could be easily disproven? Or would you make some vague claim that, that you know, well, that could be true, couldn't be true, how do we know? So what did he do? Logically, Jesus made some claims. He claimed to have authority over sin. Twice Jesus forgave sins. There was a paralytic man who was being brought to Jesus. His friends couldn't get him in the room where Jesus was, so they tore the roof off and lowered, Jesus, lowered this man down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And all the Jewish leaders started to get upset. And he said, Okay, just to prove that I have the power to forgive sins, get up and walk. And he healed the guy. A woman came one, one day. Jesus was at a party, and a woman came in, and she had ointment, and she began washing Jesus' feet. And Jesus said, woman, your sins are forgiven. And the religious, again, the religious leaders asked him. Now, they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God because only God has the authority to forgive sins. Last week, as I said, we were in John chapter 8 when he, when he uh, healed the woman or, or forgave the woman for her adultery. And as we go through John chapter 8, the rest of the way, we see that, that uh, Jesus continues to have this conversation with religious leaders of the day. And they're trying to trap him just like they were at the beginning of John chapter 8. They keep trying to find evidence that they can pin on Jesus so they can get rid of him because he keeps embarrassing them. He calls them uh, empty tombs and whitewashed tombs, and Jesus just keeps humiliating him. So they keep trying to find these reasons to get him. And Jesus makes this claim that the people who follow him won't die. And I think that the Jewish leaders went, wait a minute, what did he just say? Let's kind of pull on that string and see if we can get this to unravel here. So this is how Jesus, this is how that interaction went with, with him. In John chapter 8, verse 53, they say to him, they say, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And I can just see these guys, they're like, wait a minute, you're claiming that you're greater than Abraham, you're, creating, you're claiming that your people will never die, come on, say it, just say it, you're God so that we can stone you. So they point blank asked the question, they wanted Jesus to condemn himself, they've been trying the whole chapter long to try to trap Jesus, and now they got their chance. And Jesus answered in verse 54. He said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you, do not, but, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Again, Jesus is calling out the religious leaders. He's calling them liars, saying, you know God. You say you represent God, that's false. And if I said I don't know God, I'd be a liar just like you. Not only do I know him, I follow him. 
Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said, you are not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. So at this point, they're just begging him, say it. Just say it, your God. You believe that you're God so that we can stone you. I can see them. I can see them. They probably got a pile of stones. They're ready to go. Just like last week, they had the stones. They were holding their stones in the hands, ready to beat this woman to death that was caught in adultery. And Jesus challenged their hearts. They dropped their stones and walked away. This is the same area. The stones may be laying around. They're ready to go. If Jesus claims it, it's blasphemy. If he says, I'm God, he is blasphemed against God. They have all the evidence they need. They can stone him. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you don't understand the history of that, of that title, I am, that doesn't mean like a whole lot to you. But the, the I am, the great I am is the God of the Old Testament. When Moses was called to go lead the children of Israel out of 400 years of slavery from Egypt, Moses said, who should I tell the Israels is sending me? He said, I am has sent you, the great I am. And what that means in the original Hebrew, it means that he is the absolute God. He is the eternal, uncreated God. He is unchanging. He is all-powerful. And Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming to be the uncreated unchanging, eternal, all-powerful, almighty God. He claimed to be the I am. And just so that we in our day can understand and not have the confusion about that, verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus claimed to be God. They had all the evidence they needed. By law, by Jewish law, they should pick up stones and stone him. So Jesus claimed to be God. But more importantly, this is where all of Christianity hinges. Jesus claimed the resurrection. He claimed that he would die like every other Christian or every other religious leader throughout history has died. But Jesus claimed that he would resurrect, that he would come back to life. Now, let me ask you this. Logically, if you were a fake, would you say, I will physically rise from the dead or I will be killed and then my spirit will rise and I'll go to heaven and prepare a place for you? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't claim a physical resurrection if I couldn't back it up because the whole thing hinges on the resurrection of Christ. On three separate occasions, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. And these, all three of these are recorded in all three of the Gospels. The first time is in Matthew chapter 16, Mark chapter 8, and Luke 9, 22 through 25. Jesus says, I will be crucified, and on the third day, I will rise from the dead. The second time he does it in Matthew 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke 9, a little later, 43 through 45, he says, I will be crucified and I will rise from the dead. And the third time he did it was in Matthew chapter 20, Mark chapter 10, and Luke 18. Jesus said, I will be crucified and rise from the dead. And when something is repeated three times, it, it increases the importance of what's being said. In the Old Testament, it says that they say the words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the great I am. Holy, holy, holy. When you do it three times, it makes perfect holiness. Jesus three times claimed that he would rise from the dead. And if he were a fake, I can't believe he would do that. I can't believe he would do that. 
Why wouldn't he claim something that couldn't be proven? I will die and spiritually go be with the Father. It isn't logical that he would do that. So within the first 40 days of Christ's resurrection, here are the times that Jesus was seen by people. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For I delivered to you, Paul is talking here to the Corinthian church, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, First he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul, if he's trying to keep this fake thing going, why would Paul name people by name that had seen the resurrected Christ? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And then he even says 500 people saw him at one time and most of them are still alive. Go ask them. Go see if they saw the risen Christ. This happened all within 40 days of Christ except for Paul. It says he was one that was untimely born. Everybody else believed in Christ ahead of time. Paul didn't believe in Christ till after the resurrection when he saw physically the resurrected Christ. He said, go and ask them. So here's the reality. When we look at the claims that Jesus made, he claimed that he could forgive sins. He claimed that he healed people. He claimed that he was God, and he claimed that he would rise from the grave. We have logically to understand something here. Jesus was either a lunatic he was a great liar or someone possessed by Satan, or he is who he says he is. Now, C.S. Lewis addresses this in a book called Mere Christianity. This is one of my favorite lines. I love C.S. Lewis. This is what he says when he's talking about the risen Christ and whether he is who he says he is or not. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus either is who he says he is, he is a demon from hell, or he is a liar. He cannot be a great moral teacher. So many other religions say he is. Islam even says Jesus was a prophet. He was a great moral teacher. He didn't leave that option open. So I look at it and I go, okay. So we have historical evidence. Supports that Jesus lived and died. Logically, it makes sense to me with the death of the disciples, with the way they were treated and how they lived, and the claims that Jesus made himself, 
it seems logical to me that we at least have to say, okay, there may be something to this. The third piece of evidence is personal experience. What has Christ done for me? Now, I don't know where you are with Christ. But I can tell you I have met Christ as my Savior. I have been there. See, he has changed my life. Almost every other religion says that to be accepted, when you die, your good life has to outweigh your bad life. In Islam, if your good outweighs your bad, then you get to go to heaven. And if you were murdered uh, for the sake of the faith, you get 70 virgins when you get there. Uh, Hinduism says that the good outweighs the bad, then you'll come back as another being that's even greater than you were the first time. If the bad outweighs the good, then in reincarnation you'll come back as something a little bit worse. That's not what Christianity says. Every other religion, you have to work your way to heaven. You have to do the work to earn the acceptance, and your good has to outweigh your bad. But Christianity is different. So you can't work your way to heaven. There is nothing you can do to impress God to the point where he'll let you come into heaven. You can't earn it. But Christianity also has something that no other religion offers. You see, for Christianity, Christ came. The penalty of us not being good enough and sinning is death. And Christ came and he took our place and he took that death for us. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. Jesus went to the cross, which is recorded historically. Jesus went to the cross for us to pay our penalty so that we could become children of God. And all you have to do is accept him. Accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life. Remove yourself from the throne of your life and put him there, and you become his child. Now, I've had that experience. As I said, he has taken a guy like me, and this is not bragging. But I've lied. I, uh, as a kid, stole gum. This may sound, I have disobeyed my parents. Let's get all the little ones out of the way. (laughs) I've committed adultery. I was that woman last week. And Jesus ticked all my guilt and all my shame, and he gave me a new life. And he gave me purpose. And he can do that for you too. You see, I've tried the other ways. I tried to work my way there, born and raised, bishop's grandson in the Free Methodist Church. I tried the, my parents are good, so I'm good. I tried the family tradition. It failed. I tried the the help self model. That didn't work. I tried the working my way. That didn't work either. I worshiped money. I've worshiped myself, but nothing seemed to work. Nothing worked until I submitted my life to Christ, and he's given me a peace. He has given me a fulfillment and a purpose that I've never had anywhere else. And that is why I believe Christianity is the right answer. It's because history supports it. Logic, it makes sense. And I've personally experienced it. And maybe you don't have that experience. Maybe you've never had that today. And you don't have that personal experience. And if you don't, we're getting ready to close. And during that time, if you want to know more, if you want to talk, I'm going to stand right down front. I know that's kind of weird. That's old school. But I'm going to be down here. And if you want to know more about Christ, come down and talk to me. And if you don't feel comfortable walking down here, that's fine. My wife's going to be standing right over there by that door, over by the curtain. Go talk to her. 
there is no greater question than we have. And if we believe there is a God, then we have to know which one. And I believe the only one that makes sense through history, through logic, and through my own personal experience is Christ. And if you don't know that, come talk to us today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your son, Father, sending him to die in our place. Lord, thank you for your life. Lord, thank that you've given us evidence that you are who you say you are. Lord, be with our time now. Be with our week, Lord. Let us live lives that glorify you. And if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you'd pull on their heart right now. They would get this straight today. In Jesus' name, amen.